Every once in a while, I get lost in the never-ending tunnel of YouTube. And, uh, you know, you, maybe I, originally I start because I'm, I'm watching a video that I'm actually interested in, that I'm watching intentionally, but then I'm watching that and then along the other side, these other interesting ones come up and then I, I get distracted and I say, oh, that looks interesting, so I watch that anyway. Most of you know the kind of rabbit trail I'm talking about. It's, it can be never-ending. But one thing that I often enjoy watching on YouTube are Olympic highlights, and sometimes the, the, the backstory behind some of these athletes who have conquered incredible odds to win a particular race or a particular event. So this happened to me a couple weeks ago. I was going down one of these Olympic YouTube rabbit trails, and uh, I came up upon a video that was all about the start of the 100-meter race. It wasn't even about the race itself as a whole. It was only about the start. And this race is the one that determines the fastest people in the world, right? The fastest woman and the fastest man in the world. Now, what I had not previously understood about this race is just how crucial the start is. So the push off from the blocks... And then the first three paces, first three to five paces of the race are the most important parts of the race. And if you consider that the whole race itself is less than 10 seconds long, we're talking about, in, in, a, in, a, in time period, about one to two seconds. And the narrator of this video said that, generally speaking, the 100-meter race at the international professional level is won or lost in those first three to five paces. And for this reason, professional sprinters spend an inordinate amount of their training time working on and perfecting their start. And while a good start doesn't guarantee a win, a bad start will almost always guarantee a loss. Today, as we continue our study of Acts, we're going to read about the start of something new, a new Christian work that before that moment in history had never before existed. And it begins really well. Its start is amazing. And the start is going to lead to a long, long race that's still being run today. Here's a hint. We're part of that race. What is this new work we're talking about? The first Gentile church. And what I would like to do today is to walk us through seven characteristics of this church, this church startup, that create a powerful, strong foundation for its growth and future. Now, we all know the importance of finishing a race well. Obviously, if someone starts that race, the 100-meter race, and does really well for halfway and then trips and falls, well, the great start doesn't help them at the end. But I would like to suggest today that there are ways that new Christian works can start and can start well that will give them a greater chance to continue on and have a long-lasting effect for the kingdom of God. I'll be reading this morning from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, that shouldn't come as a surprise to those of you who have been following along over the last months, but I'll be reading the last half of chapter 11 beginning with verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. 
Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So as we jump in here to the first characteristic of this new work, I want you to think about the context. Uh, So first, we need to understand that verse 19 of chapter 11 lets us know that we're entering a flashback. We're going back to the great persecution that broke out after Stephen's martyrdom. And verse 19 parallels verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So now Luke is going back and continuing that narrative. Um, Carlos, if we could get the map put up there, the image of the map. Hopefully you can see this on your screen. It's a very simplified map of the ancient Near East. Right down at the bottom of the screen, you can see there Jerusalem. Jerusalem's way down there at the bottom. Now, this text is describing the, the move of the truth of Christ, the move of the gospel, up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so originally, back in chapter 8, the, word, the, the believers were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Now, they have continued north, and to the left, that island there that you can see in the middle of the, uh, the ocean, that's Cyprus. And we've been specifically mentioned here that the word spread through Phoenicia. Phoenicia is that whole coastline that runs north from Jerusalem and then north of Israel all the way up. So then it's spreading up through Phoenicia to Cyprus. So somebody at some point got on a boat and went over to Cyprus, took the gospel there. But then others kept going, and you'll see there right near the top of the map, Syrian Antioch. Now, that's the location of the account today. All right? So Luke is continuing this narrative, and this shows you how the gospel has been spreading. Now, let's get to the first characteristic of this new work. What were the names of the people who started the first Gentile church in all history? Who were they? We have no idea. All that we're told in the text is that some men. 
Some men from Cyprus went to Antioch. As far as we know, they were common people, believers in Jesus. They were not professional ministers. They weren't apostles. They weren't famous. But as they went, they shared the joy of their newfound faith. And though Philip had preached to an Ethiopian, remember that, and Peter had preached to a Roman centurion and his family, the scale and scope of this kind of preaching to Gentiles was entirely new. And it was conducted by normal, common people who loved Jesus. You can take that screen off, Carlos, thanks. Today, brothers and sisters, you and me, we are those no-names. You know, very few of us are famous or well-known. And the burden of starting new communities, new churches, new evangelistic works should not depend only on the famous, the high-profile, or the professionals. It depends on each of us. We're called to it. The first Gentile church was started by a bunch of no-names. Guess what? We're still part of that church. We're talking about our heritage. We exist today because of those no-names 2,000 years ago. They were no-names who were obedient and exuberant in their evangelism. And the Gentile church is a result of their efforts. Now, in part through this, we see also that what's of primary importance is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not that these people were necessarily so talented. It's that the Holy Spirit is driving the gospel of Jesus from its inception in Jerusalem and it's scattering it to the ends of the earth. But the Holy Spirit works through willing people. And these people were willing. It's not because they were primarily gifted, and it's not because they were primarily trained, and it's not because they were primarily professional. It's because they were willing, and they followed the Lord and spoke the truth of the gospel. I have a colleague who used to be a, a pastor in Buenos Aires of an international church, and he told me the story about how each year, their church would take a mission trip up into northern, a very remote village in northern Argentina. And they would put on a, like a vacation Bible school for the children. And they would also, at the end of their time, they would have a service or a meeting for the adults of the village. And he said in the five or six years that he had been going there with his church, they had never had a single convert that he knew of. So this one year, now it's probably about 12 or 13 years ago, they made this trip and this pastor friend of mine, he said he decided that he was going to let a young, unknown seminarian that was studying to be a pastor, he was going to let him give the, the message, give the evangelistic message on the last night of this missions trip. And as he told the story, it was so interesting to see it through his eyes because he said, I sat there and it was the worst gospel presentation I have ever heard. He said it wasn't coherent. It was disjointed. The guy didn't speak loudly enough. People couldn't hear. He wasn't animated. He spoke in a monotone and I just had my head in my hand saying, what a wasted opportunity. And at the end of his 
gospel presentation, the seminarian just simply said something like, how many of you or do any of you want to receive Jesus if you do, you know, raise your hand. And my friend Matt said he, you know, he peeked, he did the, the whole, you know, you're supposed to have your eyes closed, but he peeked and he looked and he said, there were hands up all over the village. So he said, obviously they hadn't understood what he was asking. So I stood up and told them the way it really was and explained what he was really asking them. And he said, none of the hands went down. And he said, that day, we went from having no converts to having half the village make a profession of faith in Jesus. And the point that, that Matt was making and sharing this with me and with others was that the Holy Spirit does not depend upon human gifting or the high-profile humans. And we've, we've done that a lot within the church. We have focused a lot on the very high-profile and that's not necessarily wrong. It's not wrong to note the gifting of certain individuals for work in the gospel. But it is wrong if we then abdicate our role and our calling to be witnesses for Christ just to the professionals. Because the key is the Holy Spirit working through willing and open and obedient no-names. Now let's move on to the second characteristic. The second characteristic of this new work was that it happened in a strategic but challenging location. A strategic but challenging location. Syrian Antioch was a strategic city for a number of reasons. It was the capital of the Syrian region of the Roman Empire. It was the third largest city of its day. It was the third largest city in the known world at the time with a population of approximately 300,000. The only larger cities were Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. Antioch sat right on a river close to its mouth on the Mediterranean Sea, so it was a trading crossroads, both for trading over land, but also trading by sea. But Antioch was also a challenging location because it was morally lax. Um, there were two major shrines to pagan gods in the vicinity, and the practice of cultic prostitution was common and accepted and was interwoven through the whole fabric of Antiochian society. So while Antioch was both strategic for its location and also challenging, I have not yet mentioned its most strategic factor. It was where these believers were. They traveled to Antioch, and since that is where they were, they began to share the gospel there. The principle is, we shouldn't always be thinking about another better place. Although God may take us to different places, he may lead us into other ministries, we should start here, where we find ourselves, where you find yourself today, that is your most strategic but also your most challenging location. And I know that many of us, it's probably true for most of humanity, most of us who call ourselves daughters and sons of Jesus, we want to find an easier place or we want to find a, a, a more exciting place. 
And maybe we, we, we think in terms of strategy, a more strategic place. And as I said, it may be that God will take you there. It may be that God will move us. But we must not wait until we are at a better place or in a cooler place or in an easier place. Our call is to be witnesses to Christ right where we are. And this is what these no-names did. These no-names from Cyprus, these no-names from Judea, they were in Antioch, so that's where they shared. Start your witness right where you are. And by where you are, that doesn't just mean geography. It means where you work, where you study, the people you come into contact with, potentially within your own family. Now, here's the third characteristic of this new work that got it off to such a great start. They shared a contextualized message. A contextualized message. The first thing you need to remember about this is they started with an evangelistic fervor. That's what was moving them forward. They were sharing the gospel. And for any Christian work, for any Christian work, whether it, it, it focuses more on social relief or on the felt needs of people, whether it focuses more on meeting uh, the needs of those who are poor or in those who are outcast, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, or if it is an openly and primarily evangelistic message, the point that we have to have as our foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we lose the gospel, we have lost our reason for being. So if evangelism is no longer at the heart or part of the work that we are doing, no matter how wonderful that work may be, we have lost its core and we have lost its soul. So these people, these no-names that are in, in Antioch, they are gospel-focused, but as I said earlier, they have contextualized their message. And notice I said contextualized, not changed. If you go back through Acts, you'll note that until now, in almost every context that Jesus has proclaimed, so anytime one of the apostles or one of the disciples shares about Jesus in a public context, they proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Stephen did this, Peter did this, Peter and John together do this, Philip did this in Samaria. And that is because they were speaking to Jews. Gentiles would have no concept of a Messiah. It would be meaningless to them for someone to say, hey, this man Jesus, he's the Messiah. What's Messiah? They don't have that in their history. They don't hold that up as a hope like the Jews did and even as the Sumerians did. However, it was common for Greeks to seek a Lord. And the word for that in Greek is kurios. They were, within their culture and within their religious conceptions, they would seek a Lord who would be a savior, who would save them from death and make them immortal. So do you understand, the Greeks were not necessarily seeking the God of the universe. They definitely weren't seeking Jesus Christ, his son, crucified, died, buried, and rose, risen again. But they were seeking a Lord who would save them from death and make them immortal. They were seeking immortality. 
And we might miss this because to us these words don't carry the same contextualized impact as they did when, when, when all this was happening in Antioch. But notice how these witnesses, how these no-names introduced Jesus to the Greeks in Syrian Antioch as Lord. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the implication there is that this is the Lord that will save you. This is the Lord that you've been seeking that will save you from death. And yes, will give you eternal life, will make you immortal. And so it's, it's subtle, but they don't mention Messiah at all because they have contextualized their message. They understand the cultural and the religious background of the people to whom they are sharing, with whom they're sharing, and so they contextualize their message for them. Please hear me. They don't change the message. They don't change. Jesus is still the Son of God, crucified, died, buried, and risen. He still died for their sins, but they contextualize the message, and that's important. They understand their audience. And now we move on to the fourth characteristic. So just as for the sake of review, since there are a lot of these characteristics, the first characteristic was that this work was begun by no names. No names, unknown people who were simply obedient to the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, they were in a strategic but challenging location. And that strategic and challenging location is right where you are right now. And then thirdly, they, they preached a contextualized message, and now we arrive at the fourth characteristic. They accepted wise, experienced leadership. They accepted wise, experienced leadership. The mother church in Jerusalem hears what is happening, and as they did with Samaritan revival, they send a respected, well-known leader to check out this new work. To Samaria, they had sent Peter and John, while to Antioch, they send Barnabas. Barnabas was the perfect choice. It was absolutely perfect. Remember, we've met Barnabas before, and even his name, Barnabas, that's a nickname that is drawn from his strongest personality trait and characteristic, that he was an encourager. And that's what Barnabas means. It means son of encouragement. And that encouraging nature brings continued life to this new church, when Barnabas arrives, his first reaction is gladness and celebration over what the grace of God had done. And he encourages the believers to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That perseverance, that's, that's something an encourager does. He was encouraging them to persevere because, you know, by this point, perhaps the, the honeymoon phase was over and now they were dealing with the challenges of daily walking in obedience with Christ. And so Barnabas comes in, he sees what's happened, he is glad in his spirit, he is so excited, he rejoices, and then he just encourages them, keep going, keep going, keep going, don't give up. Now these are three subpoints. okay? So we're still talking about the wise leadership. Now there are three subpoints here about Barnabas that I want to draw um, us to, to note. First of all is his character. Luke goes to some extremes to make sure we see this. He's an encourager. We know that from his name and from his history. When he arrives on the scene in Antioch, 
He is not critical. And I think this is a temptation for a lot of older, more experienced leaders, perhaps, when they come to a new work, and I'm including myself in that, you come to a new work, and our first tendency is to start finding all the things that are wrong with it, or how um, we would do things differently, and that's not what Barnabas does. He comes in, he sees what the grace of God has done, and he rejoices with them. Then he encourages them to persevere. So we see he was joyful, And then Luke uses a description of Barnabas that he only uses one time in all of Acts, and it's right here. He says that Barnabas was a good man. Nowhere else in the book of Acts is any individual person called good by Luke, but Barnabas was. And then there were two more descriptors of Barnabas. He was full of two things. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. In this brief passage, there's more said, or I should say more communicated about Barnabas' character than there was either about his work or his gifting, his abilities, we would say. And in fact, all through the New Testament, whenever the authors speak of the qualifications for leadership within the church, the emphasis is always on the character of the person and less on their abilities. It's not that abilities are unimportant. It's that character is much more important. And we should take note of that as well. In Christian leadership, we should look first for godly character and after that for talents, abilities, and gifts. The second sub-point here is that the Gentile church accepted his leadership. So first we see his character. He was an incredible man of character. But the fact that the Gentile church accepted his leadership shows humility and wisdom on their part. It would be so easy for them to react against Barnabas. At least I imagine it would be. Hey, hey, wait, man, who are you? We started this thing. We did this. It's ours. We don't need you. We don't want you. You're from that old-fashioned, old-school Jerusalem church. Here, we're like young, fresh blood, modernity, you know. We're, we're pioneers. We're doing something that's never been done before. We got a Gentile church going. You don't have any experience in this. You're, you you old-fashioned dude. We don't need you. That's not their attitude at all. They accept the wisdom and the experience that Barnabas brings. This also shows that the Gentile church understood that they were not independent but they were part of the larger universal church. That though they had arisen among Gentiles, they were committed to and under the authority of the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem. Here's the third and final sub-point. Barnabas as a leader, Barnabas as a shepherd, was humble and acknowledged his own need of help. The text says that a great number of people were brought to the Lord, and Barnabas realizes quickly that he needs help. He was a humble man. But beyond that, notice how he goes about getting help, because this is going to show us something else about Barnabas' character. Tarsus, Paul's hometown, was about 100 miles from Syrian Antioch. Now, 100 miles today, that's about 160 kilometers, that's no big deal, right? You might know somebody who commutes that far every day for work. But now let me suggest that you make that journey on foot in the Middle East, 
in dust, and you don't have Nikes to wear, okay? You're talking about flat sandals, okay, at best. So that, in that context, Barnabas takes upon himself to make that journey, that would be several days, probably maybe even six or seven days, on foot, and when he gets to Tarsus, he has to look for Saul. There's, we, we don't know exactly what's happened, but the implication is that Saul had been kicked out of his family for his conversion to Christianity. Why? Because he came from a prominent family. A prominent family would have been well-known in the city. They would have known exactly where their house was, and all that would have had to happen is Barnabas would have had to come in and say, where is the, the home of this family? And he would have been directed straight there. But Saul is no longer living in his ancestral home. He has lost, apparently, his family, his title, his position because of his conversion. So Barnabas has to search for him. But he eventually finds him. He finds him, then what does he do? He turns around and he walks back another hundred miles back to Antioch with Saul. Now, what we see here is not only the humility of, uh, on, on Saul's part, not only his humility in realizing that he needs help, but also a heart of a disciple maker. He m goes to that great effort to get help because he wants Saul to come. He recognizes the gifting in Saul, but he also recognizes an opportunity for Saul to grow. He brings Saul back, and together, for a whole year, they pour into these believers in Antioch. And I can imagine that in that context, Barnabas is also pouring into Saul. This is the second time Barnabas has done that for Saul, right? It's not just the first time. It's the second time. So we see in Barnabas also a, the heart of a disciple maker. He is growing the, the man Saul. And we know that in, in a very short period of time, we always hear about Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and just very briefly, that's going to flip. It's going to be... Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. So the fourth characteristic of this new work that led to a great start was that they accepted wise, experienced leadership. Now we move to the fifth characteristic. There's one little phrase that ends verse 26, which gives us quite the insight into this new Gentile church community. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. In Greek... The word Christian means Christ people. Christ people. Why would the broader populace of Antioch refer to these new disciples as Christ people? Let me give you an example. When uh, Julie and I were living in Baytown, Texas, we were both teaching at a high school there. We had one student or at least I had this particular student. I really enjoyed the student. I maintained contact with him until today. But one day he came to school and he told this story about one of his neighbors who had just purchased a sports car. It was called a Dodge Viper and uh, it was new on the market. Now, what happened over the coming days and weeks is that this student, I'm going to call him Brian, that's not his real name, I don't want to reveal you know, the innocent here, but um, Brian talked about his neighbor's Dodge Viper, constantly, all the time. He found a way to work it into every conversation, and then 
his neighbor gave him a ride in the viper. And then, forget it. Forget it. That was the only thing that Brian would talk about. That was the only thing it seemed like he would think about. And it kind of became this joke among the whole school that, oh yeah, that's Viper Boy. You know, um, that's, you know, Brian and the Viper. It was, it was kind of his most defining characteristic. You see, Brian had talked about his neighbor in his car so often that these comments began to define him. And it began to define how other people saw him and thought of him. These disciples in Antioch were defined by Jesus. To the unbelievers, it must have seemed that Christ was all these people talked about. It was what governed their lives, what they wanted to tell others about, and it was their first priority. And obviously, they were different from the surrounding community. They had to be different or no one would have taken notice of them. And so what we see is that their identification with Christ defined them. And that's the fifth characteristic of this new work that started so well. They found their identity in Jesus. They were defined by Christ. So there is a finger of conviction that points to us from this characteristic as well. Do we so find our identity purpose, and motivations in Jesus, that when others think of us, the first thing that comes to mind is Christ. So I asked you back when we first, we first read about Barnabas a number of weeks ago, I asked you to think about what would people call you, what would your nickname be if people called you by the trait, by your personality trait that was most common or most visible? What would they call you? Now, I want us to expand that, and I want us to consider what outsiders or unbelievers might call us as individuals, but also might call us as a community. If they were to say, if they were to fill in the blank, those are the blank people. Would they say those are the Christ people, those are the Christians Now, I'm not talking about labels. I'm talking about what actually defines. Or would they say something less positive or less pleasant? Those are the selfish people or those are the exclusive people. What what most defines us? And along with that, do we spend more time hiding or minimizing our relationship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, trying to fly under the radar so that we don't attract that unwanted attention or even prejudice. I can imagine that happening in the workplace, right? You don't want to make waves. You don't want to attract attention. You don't want to be accused. You don't want to be mocked. Um, So we minimize our, our relationship, our identification with Jesus Christ. So when we're here on Sunday mornings, um, when we get to be here again in, in, in this building, you know, that, at that time when we're, when we're in a safe environment, then we can fully identify with Jesus. But when we're out in the world, we're not going to make that identification so clear. The members of this new work were so defined by their relationship and belief and faith in Christ that people started calling them Christ people, Christians. 
I'm realizing right now that I misspoke at the beginning. I told you there were going to be seven characteristics, but you can be relieved. There are only six, so we're getting to the final one now, sixth, the sixth characteristic. The sixth and final characteristic is that even though this was a young, a very, very young, a new work that's just starting, they had a missions focus. When this prophet Agabus comes to Antioch and prophesies regarding the coming famine, the reaction of this new church is pretty remarkable because, first of all, they believe the prophecy. So they're still pretty young in the faith, but there's something that the Holy Spirit testifies with them, this is real, you need to believe this. And secondly, they act upon it in a sacrificial way. They're part of the Roman world themselves. And this prophecy says that the famine is going to be across the whole Roman world. So it would be natural for them to say, we have to make sure we can take care of ourselves. Let's start saving. Let's start stockpiling. But instead, they say, you know what? Let's take up an offering and send it to help our brothers and sisters in Judea face the coming challenge of this famine. So even though they're new as a church, they're already focusing outward with a mission attitude and understanding that they, are, they do not exist just for themselves and their own comfort, but they also exist to reach out, to bless, to send, to go. This new work quickly gained that outward focus, the mission focus. Now, let's bring all this together and apply it to us. Along the way, I've applied little points here and there, but I want us to consider it as a whole. Is it possible that sometimes we don't begin well because we don't begin at all? Perhaps we're afraid of entering a new season or a new challenge for the Lord. We're scared. So we don't do it. We don't start at all. Maybe, maybe we see ourselves as no names, as unqualified, so we wait for the professional Christians to witness or to serve or to lead or to begin a new work. Could it be that in the context of church service and leadership, you see yourself as a no-name, but God might actually be calling you to serve him in a remarkable way through the power of the Spirit who capacitates people to do his work? Maybe it's something as simple as the Holy Spirit challenging you to be more intentional about sharing your faith evangelistically. In other words, becoming more willing to be identified with Christ even in the secular environment. And we all know that the price for doing that is getting higher and higher. Uh, here in, in Brazil, I would say 30 or 40 years ago, there wasn't a particularly high price to be paid for identifying yourself with Christ in the public square. But today, for any number of reasons, sometimes from mistakes that our Christian brothers and sisters have made very publicly. Sometimes it's because of the actual animus that's in society against Jesus, an antichrist spirit, therefore is going to be against his disciples. I mean, Jesus warned us that this would happen. 
He told us, he told his disciples, and by extension us, that we're going to have trouble in this world, that we are going to be hated because of him. So I acknowledge and I understand that the, the, the price today is higher than it was 40 years ago to identify yourself publicly and consistently with Christ. But is that something that the Holy Spirit is calling you to? Have we been flying under that radar? Now, let's think about this even more uh, corporately as a body. Maybe, maybe the Lord is calling us as a church to begin new things. Even as those no-names started the church among the Gentiles, a completely revolutionary new thing, could God be calling us as a community of no-names to start some new things? Maybe on a smaller scale, think about starting new community groups. You know, we need, we have more people that want to be part of community groups than we have community groups available right now at Calvary. And part of that is because we, we, we are really struggling to find people who are willing to lead community groups. Maybe God's calling some of, some of us no-names to be willing to step out and say, okay, I will lead that. I will make the sacrifice to, to lead. Maybe he's calling others of you to join to join a community group, to put yourself at disposal to invest in other people's lives and to receive and to be invested in by others as well. Maybe he's calling our church to start a new church or more than one new church. What does the Holy Spirit want to do? How does he want us to start new things and to start them well? Let's place ourselves at the disposal of the Holy Spirit that he might use us each for his glory each for his glory. And I, I just want to briefly say, because I talked about community groups, that we do have a new way for you to communicate about community groups. So we have a new email address, and it's a really complicated one, okay? Like all our email addresses. So listen carefully. It's community at calvary.com.br. So those who are leading our community group ministry right now, right now are Dale and Tamara Kyes. A number of you have known them. They've been up here sharing about community groups. You've seen their photos. They are the ones that have access to that email and they will answer it. So if you have questions about the community groups or if you want to join a community group, you want to be part of one, then send an email to community at calvary.com.br. Brothers and sisters, what might God want to do in us? How might he want to start something new through us? through the no-names that we all are. And the challenge is for us to even be open to that, to be willing to hear how the Holy Spirit would lead us. Because the work is done by Him. I want to be clear on that. The work is done by Him. And those that God calls, He will work through them to accomplish His will.